Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today. First, Yasha Levine, who identifies as Soviet-American in his Twitter bio, will offer a Russian perspective on the current Putin-phobia, along with a skeptical take on the latest NSA leaks to The Intercept. And then Angela Nagel, author of Kill All Normies, will tell us about the alt-right. First, Russia and the NSA. Yasha Levine has been in St. Petersburg, the city formerly known as Leningrad, finishing up his book Surveillance Valley, an analysis of tech and spying, forthcoming early next year from public affairs books. He's perfectly situated both to react to the current American, or at least Democratic Party, obsession with Russia, and to the leaked NSA report on alleged Russian hacking into our voting system published by The Intercept on June 5th. Not much more than an hour after its publication, the feds arrested the presumed leaker, reality winner, with the presumably unintentional help of the intercept itself. What does all this mean? Here's Yasha Levine to help us out. So how does it feel being there in the epicenter of world control? It seems like uh, the country you're in right now is, is just controlling everything from you know France uh, to the U.S. elections. The almighty Vlad Putin is just controlling the world from his desk in the Kremlin. I, I will tell you, uh, Doug, and, but you can't tell anyone. I mean, people here are pleased. Uh, they're pleased with themselves. They're pleased with the, with their power, for sure. Uh, and they never felt it before. No, no. It's it's. I think it kind of, it's it's a surprise to most people here. You know, it's almost impossible to talk to people here uh, about it because, they, on the one hand, they don't believe you unless unless you spend your time watching MSNBC and reading CNN. You know, it's like it's a different world, right? So it's not, it doesn't really permeate out from there. And if you try to explain it to people, actually, what's going on and the, and the hysteria that's taking place in the states and in Europe. And that everything is being blamed on Russia and everything. And actually, it's being blamed on Putin personally most of the time, you know, to the point where, I mean, I was listening to a congressional investigation, uh, watching it on C-SPAN the other, the other week. And a congresswoman blamed uh, Vladimir Putin for, quote, undermining truth and asking an intelligence official, James Clapper, he was the director of national intelligence, a spy. What can we do to regain truth from Mr. <laughs> Putin? The CIA, yes. Uh, known avatar of truth. Yes, yes. I mean, and so when you try to explain it to people here, people just don't believe you. They think they're kind of like ranting. I mean, some people don't believe you, and other people just don't. If they do believe you and, and, and do know what's going on, it, there's just a kind of a stupor. They can't get a handle on it. You know, they can't imagine that Americans would be so insane. So it would be so delusional because they know, like, you know, most people who watch uh, Russia and who watch it develop and kind of scramble up from the heap that it was in the 90s. I mean, Russia doesn't have that much power in the world, barely has any power. You know, it's struggling to maintain a kind of a semblance of, uh, of stability within its own borders. It's a joke, you know, and, and, a, and a lot of people who are, you call them kind of liberals, you know, Russian liberals who are against Putin and, and, and are pro-Western, you know, they're beginning to really turn in a hard way against America because what they see is a kind of a mirror image almost of what's what, what they've been warning people uh, about in Russia and it's kind of the propaganda and the, the attempt to whip up um, anti-Western hysteria. And they see a mirror image of that happening in the West. Yeah, America has become, has become the Russia that it wants to protect itself from. You know, It's actually its own image of Russia that it wants to protect itself from. That's the cunning of the dialectic. But now I'm sure a lot of American liberals uh, who are in the grip of their Putin phobia would say that uh, Putin keeps 
Russian people in darkness. It's a totalitarian country. I've seen liberals now saying Russia has gone from authoritarian to totalitarian now. Uh, it's made that uh, great transition. Uh, so, of course, the Russians are not going to know what Putin is up to. And uh, then you could also develop the argument that uh, it's pre- precisely because of domestic weakness that, uh, that Putin has all these ambitions abroad. Well, I mean, yeah, sure. You can, you can make all sorts of claims. To make the counterclaim, it's, I mean, most Americans don't know what, what uh, America is up to, you know? And so it doesn't, it doesn't take a totalitarian country to have people who live in it be kind of uninformed and ignorant of, of world affairs or, or what its, what it's uh, country is doing uh, internally and externally. It's definitely not totalitarian. I mean, look, I'm, I'm in St. Petersburg right now. And, uh, you know, and, and I go to a cafe uh, to work sometimes. It's on the Fantanka. Uh, it's, in, you know, not, not far from the, the Winter Palace. And, you know, you come in there and, it, and you don't it's not a totalitarian place. Right. I mean, it's more I would say it's more of a, a kind of a libertarian wonderland. <laughs> I mean, you have a lot of young entrepreneurs who are opening up their own small businesses. They have their little cafes, their restaurants, their uh, food trucks. You know, the libertarians love food trucks, a lot of food trucks here. You know, all these ideas are being exported from America. And you, you come in there and it's almost like Bedford. It's almost like Williamsburg. You know, you get it's a Russian Williamsburg. And, you know, the tax rate here is 13 percent flat. Very libertarian, very friendly to businesses, actually, to small businesses, of course. Like any libertarian environment, you're free to start your business, but because there's not a lot of law and order, that business can be taken away from you by a bigger capitalist. And so there's a lot of opportunity here to make money, but also a lot of risk. If Hillary Clinton visited here, she'd probably be, be enthralled by it, you know, because she's a big uh, proponent of a kind of a the small businessman and an entrepreneurial America and a capitalist America that works for the little, for the little guy, right? Well, of course, uh, Go- Goldman Sachs writes bigger checks, though. Let's get to this uh, latest NSA surveillance thing, because you, you, you've been studying surveillance for this book you're writing. Uh, you know, this Intercept story provided to them by the surreally named reality winner. What, what do you make of this thing? Is there anything to it? I mean, the liberals are now claiming this is the smoking gun we've all been waiting for. It's a shocking story. The Intercept sent a young woman to jail. Uh, for a story that really has nothing in it, has no new information. And, it, and, and it's a bizarre story that has all these caveats built into it that doesn't provide the proof that they even claim in the opening paragraphs of the story, which is that an unprecedented look into Russia's hacking it, uh, of, of, before the, before the uh, November election. It doesn't show that at all. It shows nothing. And you, the more you kind of parse the documents that they give, which is about, they're about five pages, and, 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 and the story itself, which you know, mostly uh, has commentary from people who, you know, haven't seen the documents or have not, com- not at all connected to the NSA or the intelligence services in any way. There is nothing there. And, but they sent that, that poor young woman to jail because of, of the way that they bungled and the way that they handled the evidence and the way that they sought commentary from the NSA. We can get into that a little later. But no, I mean, it doesn't prove the, the, the liberal sort of uh, paranoia and the fantasy that, you know, the Russians have totally hacked the election and put Trump into power. I mean, it doesn't show that. All it shows is that there was a phishing campaign against several software companies that provide uh, software for um, early voting and, and, and absentee ballot voting. So it's not even the voting machines. And then there was another uh, phishing campaign uh, where they you know, posed as, as a software vendor. And they tried and they sent these phishing emails, you know, hoping that the, someone will click on the link and then put in their password and, and, and uh, login information and then allow these hackers access to their computers. A hundred emails, but the, the documents don't show which organizations these emails belong to. They just say they're local uh, U.S. government agencies. 
potentially registrars, you know, potentially local uh, election boards, maybe. Uh, it's not clear. The only, the only place that is named is Samoa. There was a one phishing attempt targeting an early registration agency in Samoa. That's it. And, but that is the only evidence that we have. The NSA itself in those documents says it has no information. It has, doesn't know whether any of those things were successful, any of those hacks were successful. They can't say in the documents themselves what the point of it was. Of, of, this, of this campaign and of this attempted hack. Um, they say that it was connected to the um, uh, Russian military intelligence, but there is no evidence of this. It's just sort of stated as fact. There are a couple of uh, nice kind of uh, graphics that are there that show how the hack worked. Basically clip art um, that kind of, you know, takes, takes someone who might not have technical understanding of how this works and, and does it in a visual manner. But there is nothing there. I mean, it really is just that there was an attempt to hack some computers of some local government agencies, and it was connected somehow to the elections, but that's it. Well, they even quote uh, in the story, uh, I believe an NSA guy or some other spook saying, well, you really can't draw any conclusions from this. Now, there, there are all these caveats in the story itself that it makes you wonder how they managed to uh, devise a uh, headline and a lead that seems so conclusive. They were really excited that they got the scoop. And look, the intercept is is, a, is is this is what happens. I think when you have a news organization run by celebrity journalists, that's been kind of assembled in this on the on the fly by Glenn Greenwald and, and Pierre Omidyar, and it, it's almost more of a brand than anything else. But yeah, they really wanted to be relevant, you know. I, I guess I don't know why they rushed to it. The other side of it is, of course, the the, the whistleblower or the leaker herself, um, or the uh, accused leaker, right? Uh, two hours after they published the story. The DOJ announced that they um, arrested a young woman from Georgia, NSA contractor, for leaking information to a news organization. As it believed, it is, that is The Intercept. And the way that they got her was through um, The Intercept's own incompetence. I mean, they basically told the NSA who it was, I mean, in, in effect, where they got because they gave the NSA the, the actual um, document that... The leaker gave them, so uh, allowing them to like look at exactly look at the um, at the printer information because every every document that you print out has a little bit like a little hidden code on it, and you can look at the model, uh, printer model, and when it was printed out. So the NSA got that information, like when it was printed out and the type of printer that was used. They said it was postmarked Augusta, Georgia, too, right? Yeah, they gave another NSA contractor that I guess they were seeking comment from information of where they where this uh, document was mailed from. And not only that, but they, I think, uh, even showed this person the, uh, the, yeah, the postmark that it came from there. And, the, and, the, and this person took a picture of it and then sent it to the NSA, which, who I think forwarded it to the FBI and the DOJ. It's kind of an incredible. To be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. Really, uh, I feel sorry for this young woman. Well, yeah, she's going to spend at least 20 years behind bars, I presume. She's not going to get this kind of support, I don't think, oh, and at least not from The Intercept. And from the, you know, from the usual kind of, you know, leaker, uh, whistleblower support crew that's very much tied to the Intercept, you know, Snowden uh, Incorporated that has come, come out after, you know, after Snowden's leaks and kind of built this leaker journalism, you know, Silicon Valley complex that kind of cr was created by this. I noticed the uh, WikiLeaks offered a $10,000 reward to anyone who comes up with the name of the reporter who leaked all this information to the, uh, to the NSA. Yeah, that's, that's pretty funny, yeah. I'm speaking with Yasha Levine, author of the forthcoming Surveillance Valley. This this surveillance journalism, you know, this surveillance is the topic of your next book. And uh, what do you mean by this surveillance journalism? I think what's going on today is that 
whenever there's reporting uh, on surveillance and on hacks or anything of that, of that nature, it's, it's usually completely divorced from historical context or, or, or the political reality of, of, of surveillance and spying, uh, not just on the internet, but as a part of geopolitics that all just happens in the background, has always happened in the background. So what, what, about the story in particular is, so we know that there have been some phishing attempts against uh, some local um, government organization that handle elections, right, on the county level, most likely. So that happened, and there's this, we get like a snapshot, right, of just what happened over, the, over those several weeks. But the question is, does that happen normally? And I mean, does, is that happening right now as well against other organizations that are connected to, to the elections? Does, is that hap- does that, did that happen, you know, a year before? So the question is, is there like a background of spying that occurs generally on the Internet? And I think the answer to that is yes, but we just don't know it because it's all so secretive. We, we only get a glimpse of it here and there. I think we can safely assume that everybody does it all the time, can't we? I think we can, yes, and, and, and of course. And, but, the, but this aspect, which is crucial to understanding any kind of um, you know, hacking attempt or, or, or spear phishing attempt or whatever, is always missing from surveillance journalism. What you get is this like, oh, my God, you know, someone tried to hack this computer only to find out that, you know, maybe it wasn't even hacked in, in the first place, but that this hacking happens all the time. As we know from Edward Snowden's leaks and, we, and as we know from uh, some of the more recent disclosures published by WikiLeaks from the CIA's own um, sort of in-house uh, hacking unit, the United States basically spies on the entire Internet. I mean, there isn't a major node of the Internet that the NSA doesn't have a bug implanted on. There isn't, a ma- there isn't an operating system or, or a device that's used today that b- both the NSA and, and, and CIA don't have a way of getting into. So the question is, like, what are we to take away from this, right? <laughs> What's the lesson here? And, and the lesson is that the Internet is, in a way, in a major way, um, has surveillance built into it. I mean, that is one of the kind of the, 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 the focuses of, of my book, that's going to be coming out uh, early next year, is that if you look at the history of the Internet and the way that it developed and why it developed, surveillance, um, you know, the sharing of information, the, 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 the sharing intelligence, the collection of intelligence, the ability to have a kind of a, a real-time look at the world, you know, to, to put sensors into places and then get information based on those, you know, on those sensors and readouts in real time. This was the, the big thing that drove the development of what we call the internet today. That's what it is. You know, it's a big surveillance machine. And so it's not a surprise that surveillance happens. Well, we can all protect ourselves, right, by, uh, by using encrypted uh, apps like uh, um, Signal and Tor. Um, yeah, of course, except those very apps are also funded by the U.S. government. Yeah, that's what we talked about. Uh, yeah, last, we, we uh, talked about I, it a few months ago, yes. Encryption is also kind of a big racket um, on the internet because, look, it's like this. It's it, our devices, um, you know, have a lot of ways of that 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 you can get into a computer or an, or in a mobile phone. All these things, putting a giant, uh, putting a lock on it and, and encrypting things, right, doesn't really work because there's so many other ways of getting into 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 the systems before the encryption is ever applied. Uh, and so these devices are kind of are kind of a big, I don't know. It's almost like a marketing scam uh, uh, that's promoted by in part by. Um, intelligence agencies and by Silicon Valley, uh, by by getting people to think that th- there's a way that they can protect themselves, that there is a way that they can maintain their privacy when using the internet. I mean, in reality, those tools uh, that people use, tools like Signal that everybody started using, um, uh, in you know, uh, to protect themselves from Donald Trump's administration, and Tor that's 
supposed to totally make your browsing anonymous uh, and protect you from the government. They're, they're funded by the State Department, by the Pentagon, by the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which is this uh, old Cold War CIA um, spinoff that was in charge of running you know, Radio for Europe and Radio Liberation back during the Cold War. They're not, they're, they're not real, and, and, and they will not protect you from government surveillance. In fact, they do the opposite. I mean, they kind of single you out as someone who might have something to hide. That was Yasha Levine, whose book Surveillance Valley will be published early next year by Public Affairs. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of I Spy by the 1990s queercore band The Third Sex. Next, Angela Nagel. With the election of Trump, a whole political right wing underworld has come into broad view. Along with the usual gang of white supremacists and neo Nazis, something called the alt right also came into prominence. It has a lot in common with the old right misogyny and white supremacy for starters, but a very different style, a wise guy ironic style honed on the internet. Angela Nagel, a Dublin-based journalist, has a new book out on the topic, Kill All Normies from Zero Books. The e-book is available now, the print version any day now. Normies are normal people, whatever that means, and the alt-right doesn't like them much. The alt-right has some celebrities, Richard Spencer, most famous perhaps for getting punched by a masked marauder, Gavin McInnes, one of the founding editors of Vice magazine, and Milo Yiannopoulos, a glam gay provocateur who is now disgraced because of remarks he made that were seen as defending underage sex. But to the hardcore, these are just the alt-light, showmen who've diluted the message to get the headlines. Angela Nagel has gotten deeply into this subculture and reports back. In the interview, about 20 minutes in, she mentions Tommy Robinson, somewhat not widely known in the United States. Robinson is a pseudonym of a far-right leader in Britain, a co-founder of the anti-immigrant English Defense League, who is now a correspondent for Rebel Media, a Canadian right-wing online media outfit which features lots of alt-right types. Towards the end of the interview, she mentions Mark Fisher's essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle, a critique of part of the contemporary left's moralizing, viciousness, and preference for calling out over actually changing anything. That tendency is frequently referred to as social justice warriors. I'm very much in favor of fighting for social justice, but this tendency in the pejorative usage is more interested in scoring points than in real politics. Mark Fisher, who suffered from severe depression, killed himself earlier this year, and some of the sorts his essay criticized celebrated his death. Fisher was on this show in December 2013. Okay, now on to Angela Nagel. How did you get into just, uh, studying these disreputable sorts? 
I started about seven or so years ago looking at online anti-feminist movements. And so at the time, there's lots of different ones, but the ones that were really interesting to me were the ones that were completely uh, distinct from and a kind of a break from traditional anti-feminist politics. So online movements that had no connection whatsoever to Christian conservative uh, anti-feminism or anything like that. And so I was really looking at 4chan and other kind of, you know, red pill and different spaces that had the spirit of 4chan in some way in that they weren't connected to a traditional right and they weren't coming at their anti-feminism from that perspective. So they were more like troublemaking, trolly, anarchic, like uh, people at the time who didn't really have coherent politics, but but they wanted to um, push against the kind of political correctness and stuff like that. I would guess the cliche would be that these guys are uh, or were geeky, poorly socialized guys with poor hygiene who couldn't get dates. I mean, is that a fair characterization? Actually, it is to a large extent. Because whenever you're talking about the alt-right, everyone has a slightly different definition of what it is. And I actually don't think that you should just take the definition of a few key spokespeople. Because like with any movement, I mean, you have to observe it from the outside and people can make their own observations. And so, for example, within what we call the alt-right, there's the, the more politically serious, slightly older people. So you have somebody like Richard Spencer, who's obviously very kind of articulate spokesperson. Slightly have, older, what, early 30s or so? Yeah, nearly 40. Oh, he is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he's not a teenager in his parents' basement stereotype. But you also do have the more stereotypical, and I would say more numerous, guys who are geeky and are young. They're interested in anime and things like that. And then the origin of the, as this morphed into the alt-right eventually, I mean, the, the Gamergate was an important moment for that, right? Uh, how did that figure into the evolution of the alt-right? I think Gamergate was the and kind you're, of... You're, listening, you're probably talking to people who don't necessarily okay. know what Gamergate is exactly. Uh, well, Gamergate was, I mean, one of the biggest online sort of fights that's ever happened, basically. Um, and so it was over gaming. Now, depending on who you talk to, the pro-Gamergate, or the Gamergate, will say, side, uh, so the gamer side, it say that it's about journalism ethics or, or gaming journalism ethics, because... They were saying that, among other things, there were female uh, games creators and writers who were getting a free pass because they were sleeping with or, you know, in some way connected to influential male uh, games journalists. Uh, um, I mean, there's more to it than that, but that's basically the idea, that, 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 that games journalism had become corrupt and was kind of pandering to feminist games journalists and creators uh, for corrupt reasons. If you look at it from the other side, you ask the other people who are on the receiving end of these huge attacks, they will say they simply wanted to create a space for women in gaming or create a space for feminism within gaming. They were criticizing the gaming world as uh, sexist and so on, but they weren't saying, you know, we have to like ban things or like stop people from playing them. Uh, They were just criticizing them as you do in film or anything. You know, there's always you know, schools of criticism and you you argue against them. You know, you don't like send them death threats and uh, make them like uh, go into hiding or something like that. Even if you take a reasonably sympathetic view to the Gamergate side, like let's say they're right, let's say that that level of corruption was there. there, And even if you you only take sort of half the allegations as true uh, of their abuse of all these female gamers and games journalists, even that just shows that the feminist critics were, were, were right, you know, I mean, that, that there is, 
you know, that a sexist culture within gaming. Yeah, they, I mean, they proved the case, right? Yeah, exactly. They proved it. I mean, I should say I, I'm not into gaming. I'm happy for them to have sexist games. <laughs> I, it's not a world I care about at all. And I, I even rushed through the Gamergate story as quickly as possible in the book because, as I said, I just sort of feel the life draining out of me when I even think about uh, Gamergate. The response was so misogynistic and violent. Yeah. It really just takes the breath away. Yeah. You know, I, I sort of knew about it, but, you know, the things you quote. And then, of course, in the, this develops into the alt-right, which mm. is, you know, deeply anti-feminist. But it's, it's astonishingly misogynist, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Gamergate definitely was a window for a lot of people who would have been apolitical or had sort of some kind of cultural politics and embryo, but wouldn't have quite worked it out yet. It was their way into, you know, lots of different groups, lots of different spaces, whether it was like anti-feminist politics or relatively apolitical gamers, a lot of different factions sort of came together on, under Gamergate. Yeah, just like a, um, anti-feminist, like anti-political correctness, kind of a culture war. The political correctness also figured very largely in this, right? Mm. Was this, they were the already reacting against the social justice warriors? Or th- mm. That's when that, that really got going? Yeah, I mean, the social justice warriors kind of allow them to have something... I mean, it's a good phrase in a way because, it, you know, they're quite good at making up like expressions for things. But, you know, when they say social justice warrior, we know what they mean. You know what I mean? There is a sort of an online type. Now, there are a lot of people who object to that I know, I know. But, every, but yet but everyone knows what it, it means. Yeah, yeah. You know, like um, there is a certain online type and it's not, you know, some people have responded to the book and to some interviews and things I've done saying that I am in some way comparing the left with the old right or something like that the kind of cultural politics that we associate with the term social justice warrior as a a small and I would say also quite young and quite geeky sort of faction. A lot of these people are just people who live on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they make both sides like make a lot of noise online, but they're they're not, you know, certainly in the case of of the left side of, of these sort of online culture wars, I mean, they're not connected to the organized left, really, you know. But it does bleed into a lot of campus left. It definitely does. Campus and online, that's mainly where they are. But, you know, you could go into, like, find the most popular and high membership and effective trade union in in the country and ask them about any of this stuff and they will, you know, it's totally alien, like, you know. So in that sense, like, they're, they're not connected to anything on the left that I see as important and progressive and the way we should be looking in future kind of you know but but they make a lot of noise online and so they get a lot of attention so how did we go from gamergate into this alt-right thing well in some sense the alt-right in the very strict sense which is a small group of people you know and have actually very extreme sort of views and goals that i think the i think not that many people would really be in favor of well as since most of us are normies we wouldn't want to be killed right yeah yeah so that you have that hardcore of the old right who openly say that they want a white ethno state and they want like a pan-national like white empire and stuff like that the average like gamergate guy who hates feminists and who moved into um a more coherent politics through these kind of online culture wars might have started off as like a milo fan or something like that now, the weird thing is the alt-right in the strict sense already existed before that. It was just that all of these sort of merged at a certain point. And they, they, they sort of merged before Milo's, Milo Yiannopoulos' career collapsed. I guess it was somewhere between, basically from Gamergate to the election of Trump. That was kind of their golden period of being together in some sense. They kind of separated again now, I think. 
How are they related to uh, these, like the return of the kings and, and, and these men going on their, what is it, men going their own way? Yeah, and that's like right. that. yeah. yeah, talk about that crowd some. Now, when I have talked about this before, I've been misinterpreted as saying you had the men going their own way and uh, return of kings and all these anti-feminist kind of online political formations and that the alt-right came from that. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is more something like if you looked at where the kind of energy was behind, um, let's say, reactionary political movements online, something like five, six, seven years ago, it was really around the anti-feminist politics. The arc of the book in some way goes up to the present where it all becomes much more about race. Now, all of the groups that I'm talking about developed separately but at various points, they were clearly like cross-pollinating is the best way to describe it. They start using the same expressions, the red pill metaphor, the red From pill. From the Matrix. Yeah, the, the red pill a reference to um, the, the choice uh, in, in the Matrix between seeing the world darkly but as it really is or continuing uh, as you were, steeped in like liberal dogma and like believing the the dogma and the sort of values of your liberal parents and teachers and that kind of thing. So taking the red pill was like seeing the world as it is. But the red pill, like on Reddit, was very much about anti-feminist politics. And then over on the other side, you have the red pill being about race specifically. So, for example, when Richard Spencer talks about like being red pilled by life, that means about race for him. It means you get mugged or something like that and then you become a racist. <laughs> um, uh, whereas uh, a few years earlier, you know, it was very much about... It, the association would have been about anti-feminist politics because that's more where the energy was at the time. Do you understand why misogyny is so central to this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they feel that... And part of, this is why the, the lead-in from kind of anti-feminist politics to uh, kind of the politics of race... Um, the reason the kind of uh, the, the the number is kind of moved from one to the other was because the, their view is essentially that feminism has destroyed Western civilization and that it has emasculated Western men, particularly white uh, men. And so now these white Western men are in this pathetic emasculated state, and so they're then you know the the kind of foreign male or the Islamist movement or whatever can come in. Uh, and sort of take over because we're in this weakened state. That's kind of more or less their view. If you look at the way they talk about, you know, issues of race, horrible as it is, there's almost a weird underlying, like, it might be a fake, but 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 there is some kind of a, an almost respect there. Like, so, so for example, they would say things like, you know, we white uh, Western people want, or we white alt-right people, I should say, want to be more like black people because they have uh, consciousness. You know what I mean? So even if you say that's bullshit, at least um, on the surface, that's what they're saying. Whereas the way they talk about women is, I feel it's almost coming from something in the unconscious. It feels much more like rooted in some very personalized, something that they can't quite articulate. But in their attempts to articulate it, I'll just give you an example. One of the ideas they talk about is um, hypergamy, this idea that basically women sort of want to mate up. And so you have this sexual hierarchy with this sort of um, collapse of monogamy and monogamous marriage. You have the sexual hierarchy among men where there's an elite of men who have a very large number of sexual partners. 
and then there's uh, these men at the bottom who have none or few and who have no likelihood of having a marriage you know and who have to who are forced to compete in this like very cruel kind of dating world and this is the women's fault not theirs yeah exactly <laughs> now the problem with that is there is a grain of truth to that statistically i mean if you look at like polling on you know sexual patterns and stuff like that it is true that uh, with the decline of of monogamous marriage i suppose you could say monogamous like forced monogamous marriage was like a an equalizing thing in a way you know it, it because there was less choice uh it meant yeah i mean this this sexual hierarchy among men has emerged there's no doubt it also reinforces class hierarchies oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah yeah. and what people always say is like in their in their mother's basement and like what i always think is well actually that is a real economic problem like you know um you have a situation where you know younger people maybe whose parents and grandparents might have been upwardly mobile not elite at all, but, but, you know, getting wealthier, we'll say. And then you have this group of younger men who feel that they are forced to compete for women and they're very unsuccessful in that. Uh, and also that their economic prospects and their prospects for, like, having a relationship, you know, just about any measure you might have of, like, um, the kind of things that people, ambitions that people have, that basically the, the situation looks pretty bleak for them. And that's true, it does. Now the title "Killing the Normies." You talk about Stacy and Chad, right? They're, yeah. They're, they're the like they're the the stereotypical normies. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was this kind of Chad and Stacy like uh, meme, and Chad being a person with mainstream tastes, a person who maybe like a sports jock kind of stereotype. So it was something between those, depending on who is who is using it. And even the term normie, like, it's used differently, you know. Some people might use it to mean, like, people with, like, baby boomer politics, sort of, like, just generic liberal kind of politics who haven't been red-pilled, you know, who don't understand the, the, the world that sort of these guys are in and the ideas that they, that they that are circulating in their online world. So, I guess, sort of, like, hopelessly mainstream and outside of these subcultures. Successful people... I mean, what, what, what position in society these, these yeah. normies occupy? Sometimes it's just used almost like the term basic, you know what I mean? It's just a, a contemptuous term for people with sort of mainstream tastes. Other times it would include, certainly with the Chad thing, it would include kind of, yeah, men who are like socially and sexually successful, who just have sort of pretty normal political, like centrist political views or who are apolitical or who, in other words, like basically people who are outside the subculture. So just as an example, they started getting very angry when, um, and this is actually when I saw the expression kill all normies, I, I thought that would be a good title for the book. They were getting very angry because mainstream like celebrities, like pop culture figures were starting to use Pepe uh, memes, you know, and not in any way connected to the alt-right. And they felt you know, like they were being appropriated. Memes. Yeah, exactly. Cultural yeah. appropriation. Yeah, and they got very angry because they didn't want Pepe to be destroyed by being used by sort of these mainstream normal people. I'm speaking with Angela Nagel, whose Kill All Normies is published by Zero Books. Well, these guys seem to have a contradic- contradictory position in it. In one sense, they're like marginalized losers, but they also think of themselves as a kind of enlightened aristocracy. Mm. And you mentioned like the the slang that they use and their, their, their whole vocabulary is to create this sense of an in-group mm. and it's a way of sort of filtering out or persecuting outsiders. Mm. So like, how do they see themselves? Yeah, it is a contradiction, but I think it just is a contradiction that just 
exists and it, it doesn't really have to make sense in a way, you know, uh, like they are both at the same time. They are both total elitists, kind of subcultural elitists who, do, who dislike those outside the subculture and they feel they have to constantly, as all subcultures do, kind of purge uh, any mainstreaming influence. And yeah, they do also think of themselves as being, yeah, an enlightened group of people and that, you know, people who disagree with them just don't really get it, just haven't really, haven't been exposed to their brilliant ideas. They're simultaneously these kind of people who you might pity in a way because of the isolation and geeky kind of outsider status, but then they're also incredibly arrogant at the same time. Like they always assume with me, for example, unless I like I have to work really hard to prove that I know even basic stuff about these subcultures because they always assume maybe because I'm female. Yeah, so yeah. You, you, you got that problem too, right? <laughs> they always assume that you don't know even like, you know, if you just went on Wikipedia and like typed in alt-right, I, I, you know what I mean? They, they assume you don't know anything about it, even if you say... I've been looking at this stuff for years. I've written a book on it. I've written all these articles on it. They love to say... It's not quantum physics. You yeah. Know, not... <laughs> <laughs> but they really think it's like so incredibly complex and unknowable and um, outsiders can't possibly understand. They've sort of bled into the real world. They, they've gone from being this online community to something that people who don't necessarily pay attention to these things know of. Like the alt-right has certainly become, yeah. if not mainstream, it's certainly something that people talk about. So. Mm. How worried should we be about these people? Are they really like core of some sort of frightening fascist movement or what are they exactly? I think we should be pretty worried about them. When I tell people about this book, um, most people think that the alt-right is like basically everything from kind of Daily Stormer over to Steve Bannon. But in a weird way... No, the Daily Stormer, that sort of thing is... Neo-Nazis have been around for a long time. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But so, but that's... that's um, you know, for example, when I spoke to my parents about it, like that was their impression that it was like everything, everything to the right of Steve Bannon, you know what I mean? Or, or everything to the right of Trump. And obviously that's wrong. I mean, and you would get absolutely savaged online if you if you didn't like observe and give a certain amount of respect to all the, the tiny like different groups and so on. Or I would certainly get loads of abuse if I didn't differentiate between them all. But anyway, I think there is something to worry about in the sense that I think that we, we who are on the left need to take the challenge that they represent seriously, not by just like, you know, going out and trying to beat them up or something like that, but actually by self-examining. Their presence should really make us more aware of our own weaknesses. I mean, I think it has. That some people want to admit it, others don't. Because, unfortunately, the left has had this terribly closed down like intellectual culture in recent years, that has meant that there are all kinds of things that we don't talk about. We're not producing the kind of really great, uh, you know, orators and speakers and thinkers and debaters uh, in the way that we once did. You know, I mean, I would say, for example, where is the Jermaine Greer of today? Where is the James Baldwin of today? You know, uh, people who can go on TV and, and like really win an argument. It's all happening on Twitter. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a problem too. But I think that in a way we should use the opportunity of this, which has been a real shock, the fact that, that a really far right kind of politics with a really countercultural aesthetic could sort of emerge and get really mainstream attention, uh, attract a lot of young people 
And those young people, even if they drift away from it, they will be changed forever by that experience. They'll remember the kind of issues that were discussed. And, you know, I've spoken to people in the last couple of weeks um, who said, like younger men in particular, who said that they were kind of alt-right and, and then changed their minds, which is a great thing to hear. I want to get back to these guys. But yeah. you're, you're very critical, and you just touched on this a bit, of uh, the, the, um, the influence that the, the ideal of transgressiveness yeah. has had on the left, not just the left, but, you know, in, in the culture. I mean, it came out of the 60s to some degree, but, you know, you can trace it back to Bataille and, and figures like that. What is the relation of that cultural transgressiveness, uh, and what, what is your problem with it? Okay, my problem with it is when I was studying this stuff initially, right, I, I, the problem that I came into was everyone at the time was writing really positively about 4chan and about the politics of 4chan and stuff like that. Like academics who would be, you know, if you, for example, I mean, I say this in the book, if, if I went into academia and said, you know, well, Tommy Robinson has some good arguments, I would be kicked out, like, you know, it would be a career-ending thing to say. But um, in academia, like pretty much all the stuff that was being written at the time about the kind of trolling culture that was coming from 4chan. And at the time, it had loads of misogyny and racism in it. It wasn't as politically focused as it is now, but it, but it definitely had all those um, elements. And it was being written about in this positive way. So what I was trying to figure out is, why is it that this space that is contains really extreme kind of stuff, incredibly nasty, racist, dehumanizing, misogynist, horrible stuff, the worst stuff you could possibly imagine, why is that being written about in a positive way where even a sort of barely right of center conservative would, would be seen as a problem in the same circles, in, in, for example, in academia or in kind of progressive, to use the vague term, kind of circles? And it was through kind of years of thinking that through that I, I kind of ended up with this argument, which is basically that one of the reasons that the alt-right used in this sort of broad sense was able to make such an impression on the culture is because you know, we essentially share some of their aesthetic sensibilities and, and things like that. So so people looked at them and thought, well, this is like a leaderless, just um, an online, like network, like leaderless kind of politics. And, you know, so it was being described as like a rhizomatic uh, or however you pronounce that word. With uh, a coming insurrection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very much being described in that way. And I was thinking, right, but it's not, okay, so what? Like, you know, um, it's like it's fascistic. It's well, well. Let's say it's 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 racist and misogynist and all that stuff. But because it had this kind of leaderless quality that that could be described through like sort of anarchists uh, and other kind of like horizontalist kind of thinkers, progressives were concluding that it must be something progressive. And similarly, they were seeing that it had the aesthetics of counterculture, shock, transgression being marginal, identifying itself as marginal and oppositional to the mainstream. And again, they concluded, well, it must be progressive if it has those qualities, you know. And I was saying, well, isn't this interesting? You know, it's, it, yes, it has all those yeah, qualities. Those are characteristics of late 70s punk. Yeah, the, exactly. The, the swastikas yeah, yeah, yeah. and so, yeah. It has all of these qualities, but it's, it's interesting to me that, the, that a far-right movement of our, our time would have these countercultural aesthetic sensibilities and would would have this kind of like network leaderless etc like formation at least at some point I, I i think the hardcore alt-right will be ditching those people soon now that they've served their purpose but at least during the period i'm looking at in the book that was what it was characterized by so it was almost like 
on a very shallow level, it almost looked like a progressive movement, but the actual ideas that were in there were all far-right ideas. What is the relation of these you know, Twitter crowd and you know, these, this online alt-right crowd uh, to more visible characters like you know, Richard Spencer or Gavin McInnes, the, you know, the uh, founding editor of Vice? Uh, are they come from the same soil or...? Okay, so again, if you, if you describe them in any way as similar, you will be rounded on by sort of pedants on Twitter saying, you know, that it's terrible that you've in some way conflated the alt-right with the so-called alt-light, uh, a pejorative term for the less... Um, yeah, who, who came up with that alt-light term? Oh, I actually don't know. Um, I, I, I can't remember, but... Um, but it was certainly... I noticed you introduced it without much explanation, so I was curious yeah, about that word. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it was just a way of describing people like Milo Yiannopoulos and Gavin McInnes and these people who rejected the biological, like, racial explanations for politics. But they're plenty vile. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but they would say things like, um, you know, liberals are the real racists, and they would say we just want like cultural libertarianism and free speech and things like that. So that's why you have this weird, weird thing now where there's like a free speech march with fascists on it, you know? Right. And then the anti-fascists protesting free speech. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It gets so very, very confusing. Weird. And, but the weirdness of it is kind of why I wanted to write the book because I was thinking this is not going to make any sense when people look back at this, you know? Uh, none of it will. Um, and I also wanted to document as well as the kind of all the different right-wing, let's say, like reactionary online kind of youth, like politics or whatever, subcultures. I wanted to document those and their relationship to each other. But I also wanted to document the same kind of stuff going on on the left. So the, the different factions, they're not as like neatly named as they are on the right, but, but there are different kind of factions on the left who fought each other during the period that I'm looking at in the book. So, for example, over Mark Fisher's Exiting the Vampire Castle essay, that was a big, that was almost like the left sort of uh, online left's like moment of splitting. And then you had people dancing on his grave. Yeah, and, and I, I, I say that in the book. I mean, I single out one particular person who, with, who, who like tweeted a couple of things about it, but I just thought She it was, was not alone. No, not at all. And, and in fact, she was just the only person who was not self-preserving enough to to continue doing it even after you know it, w it was inappropriate or whatever but like when Fisher was still alive I mean that's the that's exactly the kind of character of the attacks against him yeah it was huge at the time I mean it really you know you can almost tell like when I look at people on the left now I can tell whether they were a, a pro Mark Fisher or an anti Mark Fisher person you know Getting back to McInnes and, and, and Spencer, I mean, what do you see as their influence? Do they, are they important figures we should be paying much attention to, or are they just a bunch of showmen who are of no significance? You know, I really think they are significant. In terms of the numbers, the hardcore of the alt-right that's entirely preoccupied with race and with the sort of, um, like, biological determinism and things like that, like, they are small. But all of these groups are all intermingling the whole time. I mean, they go on each other's shows. They talk to each other on Twitter the whole time. If you follow them, they're reading the same stuff. They're sharing the same stuff. Even though, as I say, you always get sort of set upon by pedants if you in any way conflate them. But they really are connected, you know. Notice Richard Spencer, just before he got socked, said he was that Nazis hated him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To them, these differences are huge, you know. Um, 
Uh, and similarly, you know, I've seen Spencer and McKinnis fight online, you know. Uh, so I remember McKinnis saying something like, Nazis are, should not be part of, you know, our movement uh, because, you know, American patriots fought them in, in the Second World War. And, uh, and then uh, Richard Spencer responded by saying, but Gavin, why did we fight them? You know? <laughs> we should have fought the Soviets, right? <laughs> <laughs> to conclude this, you, you said earlier, you said something earlier about uh, people who've left the alt-right. Yeah. What inspired them to leave? Is there some way we can uh, learn a lesson from that to try to peel people away from this movement? Yeah, I think a kind of, definitely a rejection of the kind of uh, identity politics, really. I mean, I know it's such a fraught term and everything, but the politics of the social justice warriors like everyone knows what i mean when i say that so i think a rejection of all of it the purging kind of puritanical culture uh where everyone is sort of terrified at saying the wrong thing we need more of a, a robust kind of intellectual culture where people can really debate things and uh and where people can kind of speak and think freely um, and, you know, so in other words, like we need something for, for those uh, young men. And it's usually when I hear somebody went from alt-right to something else, they're usually quite young. So they might have been teenagers when they came into contact. They might have been on, gone on 4chan or they might have been gamers or whatever. And they, and they came to it that way. There needs to be something attractive for them to see outside of, you know, their small little online political world. And for them, you know, it's whatever, it's very adolescent, but for them, the social justice warriors are the left. You know what I mean? Like they're not aware of a left outside of that. So part of it is that they just become adults and they suddenly have adult financial pressures and, and stuff like that, that that changes their politics. So they're not just on the Internet. You know, they, they start caring about other things. So it's just maturity on some level. But yeah, I mean, I do think we need like a, a very... Um, Something that is certainly as confident as the as the alt right is, uh, because that's something they really have, and that's why they feel very much like a kind of vanguard. You know, even though they're small, they have enormous um, confidence. Yeah, the left used to be proud of being a vanguard, but yeah. now we're embarrassed by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the Dublin-based journalist Angela Nagel. Her book "Kill All Normies" is just out from Zero Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, a 1971 song retrieved from Deep Within the Crypt, Amandul II's Toxicological Whispering. Nothing like some German electro-space hippies to chase the fascist blues away. Till next week, bye. <laughs>